Welcome to Don't Look Now, the podcast with your hosts, Jenny McDonald and Will Hegeman, coming to you again this Tuesday, as always, with our story of the week. Be it story or, I don't know what we want to call it, informative segment, <laughs> fun tidbits, uh, whatever whatever it is that we, we do here. But uh, yeah, um, as always, I'm in the dark to our topic, and uh, Jenny likes to to tease me with uh, what this might be. So, so, oh yeah, but I think I might know unless we're, if we're continuing with part two today, I think I actually know what we're doing for once. So we are doing part two because I didn't come up with something new yet. No, no, it's, it's nice to actually have part two after part one. It's, it's sequential and everything. So yeah. Yeah. So we're going to talk about the fur trade, the North American fur trade some more. All right. I would like to point out, I did get asked by several people what on earth possessed me to come up with the fur trade as a topic. And I would like to state ADHD. Thank you very much. (laughs) I was just thinking of this because random anecdote, but uh, Daniel and I have been watching our way through TV shows. We kind of just like picked a show for the two of us to watch. So we we watched all of Monk. We kind of got into the comedic police serial kind of thing. So, you know, so he always hated mysteries, but I found he likes like, comedic mystery stuff when there's some funny stuff to it and it's entertaining, but there's still a, a murder to solve. He likes it. So we then moved on to psych. So we've been watching psych. So we're on like season six or seven of psych right now. They just had the one where they're, they're out in the woods looking for Bigfoot and you've got the, the dude that's wearing all of his furs that, you know, they, they see and everyone gets shot and they think that they've got Lassiter jerky and all, all that good stuff. So, uh, it's, it was pretty awesome, but uh, I was thinking of the furs when, <laughs> when watching it. My favorite part about that episode is when Sean and Gus come into the woods and Gus is trying to explain to the people that are looking for Sasquatch that they're on their way to a, a secret barbecue restaurant called the yeah. Sassy Quatch. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> it's in a cave around here. Sean promised. Yeah. I love that. Yeah. <laughs> First off, that's one of my favorite shows. I watch it all the time. Um, And second, it's funny because after we did our first episode on the fur trade, I was laying in bed next to my dog and I looked over and I was like, weird, my dog has fur. Like, (laughs) I don't know. I know he has hair, but I never really thought of it as fur until that three o'clock in the morning, like, hit me. Yeah, I never really don't usually think of them in the same connotation as like fur pelts until I had a friend in college that uh, was a forestry major and he went to Australia and ended up, you know, hunting feral cats for the summer in Australia and came back with a cat pelt that he hung on his door. And there were lots of very upset people. They were like, you know, you have a skinned cat on your door. (laughs) And he was like, like, well, you had to get rid of them in Australia, but yeah, you know, having a, Having a legitimate cat pelt was a uh, was interesting. So it definitely sparked conversation for sure. Yeah, that's that's a new one. That's yep. a lot. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Had a nice tabby tabby pelt on the door. <laughs> You're like, what the hell? Yeah. 
Uh, that's kind of creepy. Yeah, you know, like exactly. You're kind way. of like that's that's horrifying, but at the same time, like you do that for every other random wild animal that you hunt and get rid of to do, you know. Yeah. So yeah, it was a yeah, it was a conversation starter. So yeah. Well, you know, we only place value on the ones that we don't view as pets, right? Yep. Like, yep. That's wild. I was like, well, they're killing them. We might as well just take a pelt. What else are you going to do with it? So yeah. I at least they use. I don't have a good. Yeah, mind exactly. For that. Yeah, I just need a need a cat fur coat or something. Yeah, that's uh, not really. But yeah, that sounds kind of gross. Actually. Yeah, no, that's a, that's a running joke in Black Adder because I love that series too. And there's a whole episode where he's trying to get elevated to the House of Lords, and he needs his lordly cloak to be able to, you know. Right. End. So he's looking for an ermine cloak and everything else. And he's like showing a lady and she's like, oh, nice cat fur. And he's like, this isn't cat. This is ermine. And like, no, that's cat. You know, and they have like little metal dangly things from it. And she picks it up and they're like, you know, realizes their collars like Mr. Frisky. You know, and he's like, damn it. You know? Oh, that's yep. That's very black adder. Very yep. dark European yep. humor. Yep. I love much. that. Wow. OK. Yep. All right. On well, with the fur trade fur trade it is <laughs> so last time we talked about the whole history of the fur trade and how it changed over time this time we're going to talk about kind of the effects of it on the indigenous people because we know for like the europeans that came to north america the effect was it made them fairly wealthy um mm-hmm. and we know that it disrupted a lot of native american ways of life and caused a lot of wars due to you know, trying to become the number one so that they could get the supplies from the Europeans. So let's talk about the cultural effects, right? Yeah. So the biggest part was that there was a pretty big lifestyle change for Native Americans. Um, Native American beliefs revolved around respecting the environment. They believed they had a unique relationship with um, the animals that they hunted. And a lot of tribes had rules about how the hunt occurred um, so that they would prohibit needless killing of animals such as the deer. There were even specific taboos about taking the skins of an unhealthy deer. However, (laughs) because of how lucrative the fur trade was, the hunters would act past the point of restraint that they had previously operated under. Um, The hunting economy collapsed because they overhunted areas and lost their hunting Um, spaces to white settlers. And then as the deer populations declined, the government pressured tribes to switch to the European settler way of life. So animal husbandry replaced deer hunting as an income and in the diet. So that was a pretty significant change to their way of life. And then, you know, the goods that came from Europeans included alcohol. So rum was first introduced in the early 16th century as a trading island item, and it quickly became something they could not live without. While Native Americans, for the most part, acted conservatively in most of their trading deals, they consumed a surplus of alcohol. This was a fairly new like item for them, and it was very exciting. So the traders would use rum to help forge a lot of partnerships as like, um, you know, a good way in with people. So rum had this pretty significant effect on the social behavior of the Native Americans. Under the influence of rum, the younger generation didn't listen to shit that the elder generation told them to do. 
And then they would get into a lot more uh, misbehaving, um, misdeeds, if you shall, with the white settlers and with other tribes. It also disrupted the amount of time the younger generation of males spent on labor. So one of the goods provided on credit was alcohol. It led to a debt trap. Um, and because the Native Americans didn't know how to distill alcohol, they had to trade for it. So it just totally messed up their normal way of life, right? Mm -hmm. And then on top of that, creditors treated an individual's debt as a debt of the whole tribe. So that was one, right? So it's like, oh no, you will may have taken this out, but it's your whole family that has to pay for it, which is some bullshit. Um, But it was one of the ways that they, you know, strategized to keep the Native Americans in place, if if you will. Mm -hmm. So um, the Native Americans had become dependent on manufactured goods like guns and domesticated animals. They lost a lot of their traditional practices with the new cattle herds roaming in their hunting lands, and then this greater emphasis on farming because of the cotton gin, they struggled to maintain their place in the economy. Um, And there was this huge inequality gap, right? So not only do we have these creditors treating everybody's debt, like um, every individual's debt, like everybody's debt, you have some people too that are just more successful than others. So you have some people that are really good hunters and some people that aren't, which created an internal level of inequity and then the creditors are also laying a level of inequity on you and then further the traders would rig the weighing system so that would determine the value of the deer skins in their favor um so like they would you know lift the scale while you know pressing down on the scale kind of thing um they cut measurement tools to devalue the deer skin they would tamper with the manufactured goods to decrease the worth so like they would water down alcohol that they were trading for And then to satisfy the needs for deer skins, a lot of the males of the tribes abandoned all traditional seasonal roles and became full-time traders. And then when the deer skin trade collapsed, they were dependent now on all these manufactured goods and they couldn't return to their old ways because they had lost generations of knowledge at this point. Mm -hmm. And then came the ill effects on women in the tribes. So Women at this point were in in this kind of society prior to the introduction of the Europeans, they had their place, right? They were, they were gatherers, they took care of the village, it was a fairly equitable system. But then it became a common practice for the Indian women to offer marriage or sex in exchange for fur traders not trading with their rivals. Um, So for example, Radisson describes visiting an Objui village in the spring of 1660, where during the welcoming ceremony, the women would throw themselves backwards on the ground to give them tokens of friendship. It's <laughs> one way to put it. Okay. Yeah. Right. Um, and he, of course, is initially kind of confused by this gesture, but the women would be a little bit more overtly sexual. And then he realized what they were truly offering. And then he's informed by the village elders that he could have sex with any of the unmarried women in the village, provided he didn't trade with the Dakota, who were their enemies at the time. And then another fur trader, um, Alexander Henry, visiting the same Objui village um, in Manitoba in 1775, describes the facility with which the women abandoned themselves to the Canadians. Um, 
He believed that it was going to cause violence because he was afraid that the men in the tribe would become jealous at the way that they were throwing themselves at the men. Um, So he ordered his party to leave. Uh, (laughs) However, it's thought that most likely the women were acting with the approval of the men folk and probably at their bidding. Um, He said that he took his men and left at once out of fear. Um, But it seemed more likely that he was afraid his French Canadian fellows might enjoy themselves too much and might not want to travel further west which is just a lot um it's thought that the Objawi women and other native people sought to use sexual relations as a means of establishing long-term relationships between themselves and people from another society um so this has been described in other parts of the world where if you marry into the tribe you become part of the tribe so then you like can't right but, you know, that's not how the Europeans saw it. One fur trader who marries into this tribe describes how they would initially shun a fur trader until they could gauge his honesty. And then the chiefs would take the marriageable girls with them. And then the guy would be given his choice of the lot of women. And then if he married one of them, they would just trade with him and he would become part of the community. However, if he refused to marry them, then they would shut him out entirely until he either married them or they found somebody else that would marry into the tribe. Hmm. So they thought they were creating a pipeline by marrying their women off. Virtually all native American communities encourage fur traders to take an Indian wife in order to build a long-term relationship, which would ensure the continual supply of European goods to their community. Um, They thought that it would help discourage the fur traders. The fur trade did not involve barter in a way that most people kind of think Um, it was a credit debit relationship. So when a fur trader would arrive in a community in the summer or the fall, they would hand out goods who would to the natives, and then they would pay him back the following spring with the furs from the animals they had killed over the winter. So in the interim, they often would exchange Indian men and women as kind of collateral to help prove that they would bring back what they wanted. Fur traders found that marrying the daughters of chiefs would ensure the cooperation of the entire community which is even sadder in some ways. And marriage alliances also were made between the tribes. Um, So in 1679, a French diplomat called a peace conference at Fond du Lac, which is modern day Duluth, um, and of all the nations of the North, which was attended by the Abjui, the Dakota, the Assiniboine, God, I'm really tearing up these two names. Um, where it was agreed that the daughters and sons of the various chiefs would marry each other to promote peace and ensure the flow of French goods into the region. So interesting way to barter peace by marrying your kids out. Yeah. But I mean, that's been a, I mean, that's a European staple for forever is marrying off princesses to whoever to try to establish alliances. So I get it. Very true. I don't Um, like this as a way of politics though. Yeah, no, I I was just thinking I never really had thought about it much, but I always kind of have in my mind the stereotype of the French trapper with an Indian wife kind of thing that is like, yeah, you see that everywhere. I mean, even like as soon as you think of like Lewis and Clark, like Chicago, he is married to a French trapper, you know, or whatever. Yet. Yep. And the way that it, the sad part is, is that it's been romanticized so much, right? Mm-hmm. So it was like they fell in love with this Native American woman and yeah she helps to guide them through the native lands. Like it seems like this very mutually beneficial relationship when it probably is not. There's 
Yeah. There's a bit of, you know, slave wife connotation to it, but okay. Uh, <laughs> so the French fur trader Claude, Claude Charles Leroy writes that the Dakota had decided to make peace with their traditional enemies, the Abjawi, in order to obtain French goods that they were blocking them from receiving. And he said the Dakota could obtain French merchandise only through the agency of the Abjawi. So they made a treaty of peace um, in which they were mutually bound to give daughters in marriage on both sides. The marriage ceremonies were pretty simple. It involved an exchange of valuable gifts from the parents of the bride and groom. And unlike the European marriages, could be dissolved at any time by one partner choosing to walk out, which I really like. I mean, that's fabulous. Let's make for easier divorces. So the natives were so organized into kinship and clan networks and marrying a woman from one of these kinship networks would make fur traders into a member of these networks. So it would ensure the Indians belonging to whichever the native, I'm sorry, native Americans belonging to whichever clan the traders had married into were more likely to deal with only him. Furthermore, fur traders discovered that the natives were more likely to share food, especially during the hard months of winter to those that were part of their communities. So, one fur trader marries an 18-year-old girl and describes in his diary his secret satisfaction at being compelled to marry for his safety. So, wait. Um, the converse of such marriages was that a fur trader was expected to favor whatever clanship network he marries into with European goods. And if he didn't, it would ruin his reputation. Um, so this particular tribe, much like many tribes um, involved reciprocal relationships. So if you gifted them with like tobacco, then they would thank nature for providing the plants. While when a bear was killed, a ceremony was held to thank the bear for giving up their life to them. So like mm -hmm. you do and we do situation. There was a study done about the uh, Ojibwe women who married the French fur traders. And it maintained that the majority of the brides were exceptional women with unusual ambitions that were influenced by dreams and visions. Um, the women who became hunters, traders, healers, and warriors and out of these relationships with the fur traders um, came the Metis people, whose culture was a fusion of French and Indian elements. Yeah. yeah. So Indian or Native American men were trappers who killed the animals for the furs, but normally it was the women who were in charge of the furs that they collected. Okay. So they played a really important role in the fur trade. They would normally harvest um, things like rice and made maple syrup, um, which was important to the traders' diets. Uh, then they were paid with alcohol for those items. Men only wanted alcohol in exchange for furs, while the women, on the other hand, were the ones that were like, no, 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 we want the variety of European goods. We want rice. We want, you know, like we want things, not just mm. booze. Yeah. Manufacturing of canoes was work done by both Native men and women, and accounts of the fur traders often mentioned bartering goods with the women for exchange of a canoe. Um, one of the voyagers that was French-Canadian says in his journal, during one expedition, he traded for furs with the men 19 times and with the women 22 times. Um, and then there was 23 times where he never stated the gender of the people he was trading with, which is interesting to me. Um, women had a pretty low status in French Canadian culture up until the 1940s. So it's 
probably likely that a majority of the anonymous people that he traded with were women whose names he didn't think were important enough to write down. That's wonderful. Right. So for Native Americans, dreams were viewed as messages from the world of the spirits, um, which was seen as really powerful and important, um, more important in some ways than the one than the world that's around them. Gender roles were not fixed in Native American communities, and it was possible for a woman who had dreams of herself performing a more masculine role being able to pursue that um, because her community would look at her dreams and allow her to take part in that work. This was because they believed that that's what the spirits wanted them to do, right? Mm-hmm. So often the women in this community in their teenage years would go on vision quests to find out what the, sp- the fate the spirits wanted for them. And the natives that lived around the Great Lakes specifically believed that when a girl started to menstruate, um, that she was given a special spiritual power and whatever dreams she might have were messages from the spirits. And a lot of fur traders would mention how women who were regarded as being especially favored in their dream messages from the world of the spirits played important roles in decision-making in their communities. Sometimes these women would consume hallucinogenic mushrooms during ceremonies to get bigger messages from the spirits. And then once they established that relationship with a particular spirit, that's when they would go on further vision quests throughout their lives um, with more ceremonies and more dreams to continue that relationship. So there was a particular woman named Netnaqua who was living in the Red River region, whose dreams were considered to be especially powerful messages from the spirits. She's the one that traded directly with fur traders. Um, Her adopted son notes she received 10 gallons of spirits every year from the fur traders as it considered to be wise to stay in her good graces. So whenever she would visit Fort Mackinac, she was saluted by a gun from the fort. And she just was pretty powerful to the men of that area, right? And then in 1793, another woman whose name I'm not even going to pretend that I think I can do. It's so many letters. I'll get tongue tied. Um, But she's from the far western edge of Lake Superior. She marries a man named John Johnston, who's a British fur trader. And she takes the name Marie and is working for the Northwest Company. Later in her old age, she gives an account to a writer how she came to be married Um, And according to it, when she was 13, she embarked on a vision quest to find her guardian spirit while that while fasting alone on a lodge painted black on a high hill. She has this vision quest. She dreamed continually of a white man who approached her with a cup in his hand saying, poor thing. Why are you punishing yourself? Why do you fast? Here's food. He was accompanied by a dog who looked up at her like he knew her. She also dreamed of being high on a hill surrounded by water. And she could see a lot of canoes um, full of Native Americans coming and praying to her homage. And after this, she thought she was being carried up to the heavens as she looked down on the earth. She said, it looked like the earth was on fire and everyone was burning. And she said, no, they won't be destroyed. They'll be saved. And she knew that that was her spirit that was talking to her. So she fasted for 10 days, during which time she was brought water during various intervals And then when she was satisfied, she had obtained the guardian spirit in which the white stranger who haunted her dreams, she returned to the lodge. Five years later, she meets Johnston, who asked to marry her and was refused. 
Um, her father didn't think that he wanted a long-term relationship, thought he just wanted a one night stand with her. And then he returned the next year and asked to marry her again. This time her father granted permission, but she said, no, she did not like the idea of being married until death. Good for her. Um, (laughs) (laughs) But ultimately gets married under pressure from her father. Over time, she comes to embrace this marriage because she decided that he's the white stranger from her dreams, from her vision quest. They stayed married for 36 years upon which he died. Um, During the time though, she was an important part of his business career. She was a strong woman in her youth. She was one of the best hunters in the tribe. So important role spiritually, right? Mm -hmm. However, um, in other areas, the fur trade weakens the status of Indian women. So especially in the Canadian subarctic in like the Northwest Territory regions and the Yukon, um, the harsh terrain imposed a nomadic or semi-nomadic lifestyle on the people. So they couldn't stay in one place for very long where they would totally exhaust their food supply. They had small dogs with them, but they were incapable of carrying heavy loads. So the little dogs were cute, but they were about the size of a fox. Hmm. And um, they didn't really help. They were more of a burden, at least the trappers thought, right? And they couldn't like navigate the rivers um, with the canoes. So everything had to be carried on the backs of women. (laughs) They used women as pack animals, essentially. And there was a belief among the Northern Athabascan peoples that weapons could only be handled by the men so that a weapon for a woman to use would cause it to lose its effectiveness as relationships between different groups were hostile. Men were always armed. And so the women were carrying everything. All the native men living in the subarctic had an acute horror of menstrual blood. They thought that it made women excessively unclean. So men could not touch women um, as a symbol of threatening femininity, which is interesting. How do you get married at that point? Right? Yeah. No, I just saying that it, this is where I wish I could talk to my dad. Cause he, uh, this is who he studied. So when he was hmm. in grad school as an anthropologist, he went up and studied the Athabascan slavey tribes up in the Northwest territories. And this is the direct group that he was doing his PhD research on. So I am so excited I said their name correctly. Yeah, yeah, you got it. So, yes. Um, so an American anthropologist suggested that the impact of the fur trade was that a lot of misogynistic tendencies that were already long established amongst these people became worse. Um, owing to the harsh terrain of the subarctic and limited food supplies, the First Nation peoples living there had a long practice of infanticide to limit the size of their population. Because if the population is too big, they couldn't find enough food to support them. Um, And a fur trader in the 19th century noted that within a group of the Gwinnich, newly born girls were more likely to be the victims of infanticide than boys, owing owing to the low status of women. Um, Female infanticide was practiced to such an extent there was a shortage of women in their society. Yeah. Yeah, kind of a bummer. The crucial difference between the North Athabascan people living in the subarctic compared to those living further south, like the Cree, was the existence of waterways that canoes could traverse. Um, so in the 18th century, Cree and Ojibwe men could and did travel hundreds of miles um, to various posts on the Hudson Bay via canoe 
to sell fur and bring back European goods. And in the interim, when the men were off doing this trade, the women were mostly in charge of their communities, right? Mm -hmm. So at the York factory in the 18th century, the factors report that flotillas of like 200 canoes would arrive at a time bearing all the Native American men to barter their fur for goods. And the trip to this factory was made up of the Korean Ajui men while the women folks stayed behind. And it was... Until 1774, the Hudson Bay was content to operate like this, um, and the only competition from the rival Northwest Company was based in Montreal, so the Hudson Bay Company kind of had a claim to this area. But by contrast, the absence of waterways in the north forced the Athabascan people to travel by foot with the women being basically baggage carriers. So in this way, the fur trade empowered the people south the women south and then the women up north really had gone down to like a slave-like existence for the few that were left. Yeah. Yeah. I did not know that at all. So that's horrifyingly fascinating, but yeah, it's interesting. Oh. It's interesting how the presence of a navigable river changes <laughs> the total societal makeup. Yeah. that's Right. Yeah. And you know, it seems like the women bear the brunt of a lot of that, which is interesting. Um, another Native American group, the Chippewayan, began trading for in exchange for metal tools and instruments with the Hudson Bay in 1717. This, of course, changes their lifestyle dramatically. So they go from daily subsistence activities to people engaging in far wide trade. They are definitely middlemen between Hudson Bay and other Native Americans further inland. And they guard their right to trade with the Hudson Bay Company with tremendous jealousy. Um, and they prevent people living further inland, such as the Tycho and the Yellow Knives, from crossing into their territory directly for the entire 18th century. Well, <laughs> they weren't messing around. <laughs> so at the time, they were still living in the Stone Age. Metal implements were super highly valuable to them um, because it only took hours to heat up a stone pot, but minutes to heat up a metal pot, right? Mm-hmm. An animal could be skinned far more efficiently and quickly with a metal knife than with a stone knife. So they were just like, this is amazing. Let's do this. And for many Chippeway and bands, involvement with the fur trade totally eroded their self-sufficiency because the they knew how to kill animals for the fur trade, but not for food. So then they became dependent on other bands for food. Um, and then it led to this cycle where a lot of the bands came to depend on trading furs for European goods, which then they traded for food, which caused them to make longer trips. And then during these trips, they would go into these areas that were so devoid of life that starvation was the threat during which women carried all this supply. Like it just was this whole hot damn mess, right? Hmm. So um, during these areas, they made the women carry everything because the men couldn't hunt or travel for a distance if they had to carry anything. The women had to do that. So when they traveled through the subarctic in 1768 and 1772, um, the Chippewa had been trading for, I don't know, what, 70 years, basically, directly. Um, so the Chippewaian lifestyle had been completely altered and they could not go back to a pre-contact lifestyle. Yeah. They had been doing it for far too long. Um, but the thought is, is that women didn't necessarily voluntarily submit to this change, that probably they'd already been fairly low status in this community for a long time. Then you get the Gwich'n 
Quichin con- Native Americans. Um, they founded Fort Good Hope on the Mackenzie River in 1810. They were more or less egalitarian society where everybody had pretty much similar status. But of course, the fur trade lowered the status of the women over time. Um, the women were viewed about 50 years later as basically slaves. They were also carrying baggage on long trips across the subarctic. Um, a lot of fur traders at the time wrote about these women saying they were a little better than slaves, that they received brutal treatment at the hands of their men. Um, the band leaders became rich by first nation standards by engaging in the fur trade. And they tended to have several wives, which were indeed to monopolize the women in the group. This caused a lot of social tensions because the younger men couldn't find wives to have a mate, um, because the leaders took them all. So then you have a bunch of unmarried men who want women running around causing mischief. So yeah, that, um, was not great. But then when the Hudson Bay established trading posts further inland, that actually led to an improvement for the women um, because then anybody could obtain European goods by trading at the local posts. Um, And it ended the ability of the leaders to monopolize the distribution of European goods. And then about that time as well, in the 19th century, they introduced dogs that are actually capable of carrying sleds, meaning women no longer had to go on these trips and they didn't have to carry everything. I'm sorry. I don't know. Like they then viewed dogs as like the women were basically dogs prior to that to them. Like just pretty much sounds like it. Yeah. I dislike that at any rate. Um, So we've talked about the Abjawi people and they don't really treat their ladies very well. Um, the Matisse people. So remember I said they were the married in people with the mm-hmm. Canadian and um, Native American. So as the men from the old fur trade in the Northeast made trek west in the 19th century, they sought to recreate the economic system from which they had profited in the Northeast. So the marriage and kinship with the Native women played an important role in this trade. White traders who moved west established themselves in the kinship networks of the tribes, and they married a prominent Native American woman by doing this. This practice was called a country marriage and allowed the trader to network with the adult male members of the women's band who were necessary allies for trade. Um, And like I said, the names of the offspring then were known as the Matisse, and they were integral to the fur trade system. The Matisse label defined children as marginal people with fluid identity. Um, They were not defined by their racial category, but rather by the way of life they chose. So they were generally the offspring of a white man and a native mother who were raised to follow the mother's lifestyle. But the father could influence the enculturation process and prevent the child from actually being classified as Matisse during the early years for the fur trade. Fur families often included displaced Native women who lived near forts and formed networks among themselves. These networks helped to create kinship between tribes, which benefited the traders. And of course, the Catholics loved this because they thought it could they could validate these unions through marriages. Um, but missionaries and priests often had trouble categorizing the women, um, especially when trying to establish tribal identities. Sorry, Catholics, you didn't do so hot yet. They do come in later and try to ruin everything. Um, They were among the first group of fur traders who came from the Northeast. 
the men were most likely of mixed race identity, largely Iroquois, as well as some of the tribes from the Ohio River. Um, many of the Metis had multiple Indian heritages. Lewis and Clark, um, who opened up the market of fur trade in the Upper Missouri River, brought with them a lot of the Metis to serve as envoys. Um, the same group would become involved in the early Western fur trade. A lot of them settled on the Missouri River and then married into tribes there to help set up the trade networks. The first generation of Metis born in the West grew out of the old fur trade people. So they're like third generation married into the locals. Okay. Most Metis possessed both native and European skills. They spoke multiple languages and had important kinships uh, networks required for trade. Most spoke the Meshif Metis dialect. Um, and in an effort to distinguish themselves from the natives, they actually strongly associated with Roman Catholic beliefs to avoid participating in any local ceremonies. Hmm. That's when the Catholics come for them. By the 1820s, the fur trade had expanded to the Rocky Mountains. Um, and this is where the American and British interests began to compete for control. And the Matisse, of course, play a pretty big role in this competition. Early on, they congregate around trading posts where they were employed as packers, laborers, and boatmen. And then over time, they created a new order centered on the trading posts. Other Matisse traveled with trapping brigades in a loose business arrangement where authority was taken lightly and independence was encouraged. And then by the 1930s, as the Canadians and Americans are venturing into the West to secure new fur supply, companies like the um, Hudson Bay Company would provide employment opportunities. And then by the end of the 19th century, a lot of the companies considered the Matisse to be Indian. As a result, the Matisse leave because they aren't getting paid equally. Okay. And then the 1850s happen. And at this point, this is when the bison trade becomes big and the demand for bison ro robes really begin to rise. So beaver still pretty primary, right? The 1840s, you see a huge rise, though, in bison trade as beaver starts to decline. And the Matisse are, like, really adaptable to this, right? Because they're open to all these kinship networks. So they jump onto this new opportunity. The change of trade made it harder for them to operate within companies like the Hudson Bay. Um, but it made them really welcome allies of the Americans who want to kick the British to the Canadian border. Um, initially, the Matisse operated on both sides of the border, and then by the 1850s, they were forced to pick an identity and settle either north or south of the border. So the period of the 50s was, 1850s was one of migration for the Matisse, many of whom drifted and established new communities or settled in Canada. So there's a group that identifies with the Chippewa. They moved to Pembia in 1819 and then to the Red River in 1820 which is in Manitoba. And this is where they would establish a lot of prominent fur trading communities. Um, they had ties to one of the companies and the relationship dated to the eight, early 1800s when they were low level voyagers, guides and interpreters. And it's from those communities that the Matisse Buffalo hunters um, operated. They established a whole economic system around the bison trade. Whole Matisse families were involved in the production of robes, which was the driving force of the winter hunt. In addition, they sold pemmican at the posts. Unlike Indians or Native Americans, 
The Matisse were dependent on the fur trade system and it was subject to the market. The international prices for bison robes were directly influential on the well-being of these communities. By contrast, the local Native Americans had a lot more diverse resource base and were less dependent on the Americans and the Europeans at the time. But then by the 1850s, they had expanded across the Great Plains. And then, of course, they start to decline. So for one thing, we depopulated the bison. There seems to be a theme. You overhunt things and... You kill everything off. Which just reminded me, I, we were talking about, you know, beavers. And I don't think of like beaver existing in Kansas because like you don't tend to run into beaver around here because they've been <laughs> hunted out and everything. But then, you know, we were just walking around the other day out by Tuttle Creek and there's an area where they're like showing the beaver dam. And you're like a beaver dam. Like so I associate beaver it. basically with like out of the way places. Now it's like either way up in the woods in the north or in the mountains. Yep. It's the only place you find them because they've been wiped out everywhere else. But yeah. When I lived in Wamigo, there was a beaver near the park that I would occasionally stumble upon while walking the dog. You could always tell because its tail was what you would see first as it was like swishing around and you're like, what the hell? Oh, there's a beaver there. Yeah. Because I, you know, as a kid, I'd see muskrats and stuff like that around all the time, but I'd like never would see actual like beavers. So it's kind of. Hopefully they yeah. make a comeback. That'd be fun. So I'd be up for beavers running around. That'd be to an extent. I feel like there's a predator prey like ratio that has to be maintained for that though. Yeah. Well, they will have wolves running around too. <laughs> yeah, not as excited about that. I already have a, issues with the predators in my yard. I don't need that too. Mm-hmm. You can have karma. Keep the beaver population down. It's, no, he would lick them and bring them in the house as a new friend to play with. Little shit. Damn dog. Um, so, yeah, we depopulated. Um, so, for one thing, one of the ways they depopulated was that they killed all the female bison first. Yeah. They had better fur, apparently. I don't know. So, they couldn't um, replace as quickly because you had only male bison left. And then on top of that, you've got flood, drought, frost, and then the environmental impact of new settlements in the area that were threatening these herds. And everybody was dependent upon the bison to sustain their life. They tried to maintain their lifestyle through a variety of means. Um, They were trying to make two-wheel carts from local materials so that they were more mobile, um, so they didn't have to depend on following seasonal hunting patterns. But eventually... The 1870s is the end of the bison presence in the Red River area. So they're forced to relocate to areas like Canada and Montana. Um, And one of the areas of resettlement was the Judith Basin in Montana, which still had a population of bison surviving until the early 1880s. But by the end of that, they're gone. So then the Matisse hunters travel back to tribal lands um, and they wanted to take part in treaty negotiations in the 1880s. But because of how integrated they were into so many different tribes, they didn't really have great status. Hmm. Um, they tried to get land claims during treaty negotiations, and then they were reduced to squatting on native lands during this time, collecting bison bones for $15 to $20 per ton in order to purchase supplies for winter. Um, didn't ensure that they were protected or accepted as Native Americans. Um to further complicate 
they had a questionable status as a citizen of the Americas as well. They were often deemed incompetent to give court testimonies and denied the right to vote. So they for sure were screwed by being between two different systems. Moving forward, the fur trade and its various people have had a huge impact in film and popular culture. Um, It was the topics of books and films from people like James Fenimore Cooper. Uh, There was a popular Canadian musical called My Fur Lady in in 1957. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Um, And there was a lot of popular culture um, around in Montreal, especially that was centered on the male scholarly description of the fur business, which doesn't really fully describe what was going on, but that's okay. The... uh, there's a communication scientist in Montreal's Concordia University that talks about the country wise and country marriages um, and of the 18th century. And she says that women have been described as a sort of commodity, if you will. They were essential to the sustainable prolongation of the fur trade. Um, the fur was an essential fabric of Canadian symbol- symbolism and nationhood. And a lot of the controversies around the Canadian seal hunt. Um, later came, so like in the 1970s, Bridget Bardot, who was an actress, was a model for the legend campaign in the U.S., um, and she would pose nude in fur coats. And then she became involved in an anti-fur campaign shortly afterward, as you do. Mm -hmm. Um, And she was central to helping the anti-sealing movement at the time. Uh, she became really successful as an anti-fur activist and changed from a sex symbol to the grown-up mama of white seal babies. And then later gets involved in French right-wing politics. The anti-fur movement, though, is intertwined with their exploration of their history in Quebec. So that's when PETA starts to jump in and they started their I'd rather go naked than wear fur campaign in the 1990s. Okay. So fur trade has had a long-lasting effect on the Americas in general. Modern fur trapping and trading is uh, part of a $15 billion global fur industry. Wild animal pelts only make up about 15% of that output. Uh, But a recession in 2008 hit the fur industry and the trappers really hard and depressed the fur prices. And that has led to a huge drop in the sale of expensive fur coats and hats And this one further reflects trends of previous economic downfalls. Um, After that, really, there's not a lot of fur trade. I mean, it exists still, like especially for leather goods, but not like it used to. So that is the story of how the fur trade has basically affected these cultures. Yeah. No, it's, it's, pretty fascinating how i don't know interlocked all kinds of things are and just how stuff like this just completely changes societies you know the thing i was thinking of through this whole thing that you know you got to do since you're you're a cult person is vast societal change like this always shows up in crazy cults so there there have to be <laughs> some very interesting native american cults that had to have shown up through this whole process you know that's 
mean, that's essentially what they were, right? The Matisse yeah. were definitely like the cult of the moment. Yeah. They just were unfortunately like stuck after the yeah. downfall of the fur trade. Cause you know, they definitely did not have places people. They were people yeah. without a country, essentially. Yeah, it's the the downside of specialization of anything. <laughs> if you specialize in anything, you get really good at it. And when that thing goes away, you go away, which is not not good. So well then let's go down the rabbit hole and talk about some fun facts of the fur trade. Number one, fur may have saved the human race. Um, So there is some research that suggests that the Homo sapiens survived the last big ice age and the Neanderthals didn't because the Homo sapiens were more serious about wearing fur clothing. Um, Animal remains around the Neanderthal sites lack evidence of fur bearing, while Homo sapiens sites have fox, rabbit, mink, and most notably wolverine fur. Um, <laughs> nice. that kept them alive. That had so, to be fun trying to get, yeah. right? That's what I was yeah. thinking. <laughs> Who wants to try to make a living skinning wolverines? Oh, yeah. <laughs> so, we were talking about beavers because you know, beavers are interesting. Things to note when you are looking at food packages and you see the word natural flavoring or the word castorium. Oh, yes. There you go. (laughs) I know where this is going. Yeah. It's secreted from the caster sacs of beavers located between the tail and the anus. Um, It's used to simulate vanilla, but also passes as raspberry or strawberry flavoring. Good old beaver butt residue. Yeah. Yep. Beaver butts. Um, if you ever have wondered where all the animal leftovers from human food production go, such as fish heads, chicken feet, expired eggs, and spoiled cheeses, chances are it's used to make mink food. And then the manure that is formed from this eating of things, um, this soiled straw bedding and the carcasses are composed to produce organic fertilizer. There you go. Another thing I didn't really hadn't thought about the whole commercial raising of minks until my daughter was in a a zoology class and they dissected minks. Oh, really? Yeah. But all the minks they had had already been skinned because they had been commercially raised for fur. So they basically got the carcasses because people are trying to find something to do with their their minks after they raised them and killed them for their fur. Because it's not like there's enough meat on there to feed anybody. Yeah. So that's what, you know, I was like, huh, I. I hadn't really even thought about that still being a thing because I just still think of, you know, luxury furs as a bygone sort of thing. But I guess obviously not because it's still a, a large commercial practice. So I think mink fur went out of style for me the second I saw Ghostbusters and that lady's mink coat came alive <laughs> and ran away. Like I was never need Done. to see mink again. Yeah. Um. So back to beavers, Uh, apparently Canada has been doing really good on conservation because wildlife biologists believe there's many today as there were before the Europeans arrived. So their beaver population has repopulated. 
Um, they also believe that coyotes, foxes, and raccoons are more popular now than ever. Hmm. And that is why they are now allowing modern trappers that are under regulations and not allowed to over hunt, um, able to get back in there and to trap again, which is fascinating. Have you ever seen about the, the giant beaver dam up in Canada that is visible from space? No. You see it from orbit. You should look that up sometime. It's pretty amazing. There's a huge dam structure that like, you know, takes up this vast area. That's just nuts. But Population conservation and overpopulation stuff is so interesting to me. Um, I'll have to look that up for one, but like they have allowed in the national parks, they've had to let hunters back in because they had removed all the wolves at one point. Right. Mm -hmm. And then they were trying to slowly reintroduce them, but they had overpopulated to the point where like the wolves couldn't keep up with the overpopulation of elk and deer. And now they let hunters in occasionally to thin out the herds because they are so big that they're destroying the ecosystem. Yeah. It's, that kind of stuff is fascinating to me. Like you want to conserve, you want to make it safe, but like, then they do too much. And then it's way too hard to make a human made balance, you know, right. And everything else had come into balance over thousands of years on its own. And then once you screw it all up, it's really, really hard to like remake that. Yeah. Well, this is the story of the fur trade. Will. yeah, no, it's fascinating. So there we go. Old junior high U.S. history sort of stuff coming back. Okay. That's exactly what it feels, right? Very yeah, much it's like so. when you're talking about the disputes between the U.S. and the Canadians over all this stuff. I was immediately thinking of the old forty-four forty or fight stuff yeah. going on up in the Northwest, and I never really associated that with this stuff. But it obviously had to a lot of it be contention over fur and trapping and all that kind of stuff. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well. Cool stuff. It's a definite interesting thing to relook at as an an adult. Yes. Yeah. Like it's funny because we learn all this stuff, like you said, grade school, junior high, and that's it. You never again really relook at these conversations. You don't look at it at a big level. It's just people trapped animals for furs and sold them. That was, you know, you kind of like knew that that was a thing and that was about it. You're kind of like, yeah, they had trappers running around with all these animal furs and, you know, and you didn't really think about, what that meant or how that impacted society or, you know, any of this stuff, it was just kind of its own little thing, but. Yeah. That was just part of our establishment of the United States. Cool. We came. Yep. One of the first things we did was we trapped. Cool. Yep. We trapped animals. That's why you have all these all, cool, all these, you know, animal traps and bear traps. And it's now just a, a part of like, you know, I don't know, just general pop culture that everybody knows what a bear trap is. Right. <laughs> like, and- you know, it also was like that establishment of good relations with the Native Americans. We yeah. definitely never did anything to push down their society. Like, yeah, yeah. I guess part of that indoctrination stuff, yeah. but whatever. <laughs> yep. Uh, but yeah, no, thanks for, for the topic and it's interesting stuff. So yeah, appreciate Anytime. it. And thank you everybody for listening to us this week. Um, as always, rate, subscribe, review. Tell your friends we are slowly closing on on finishing our third year of this podcast. So, yeah, pretty wild. We're also, I think, we're already we're getting steadily toward about twenty thousand listens as well, which is pretty cool. So, I think we're at like seventeen thousand five hundred or something like that. So, ooh, that's exciting. Good stuff. Yeah, yeah, so, I love it. 
All right. Well, we will catch you all later. And uh, as always, thank you very much. Bye-bye. Bye.